I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Bill Bukowski, and we're talking all about Johann Sebastian Bach's Christmas Oratorio. Maybe you're like me and are pretty unfamiliar with this work, but don't worry. Bill takes us through everything we need to know and listen for in this masterpiece that you are guaranteed to love. From how it was originally performed, expected audience participation, and how Bach repurposed old music. Plus, stay with us to the end as we answer listener mail and give you a classical breakdown challenge. I think you are the perfect person, Bill, to talk about Bach's Christmas Oratorio because, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, this is one of your favorite pieces, isn't it? Not just one of my favorite pieces. It's one of my favorite Christmas pieces. It's For me, it's a Christmas tradition. I get out my recording of the uh, Christmas Oratorio, and uh, I just, I love, I've loved this work for a long, long time. And that's good because before we started talking about this, I knew very little about this work. I've heard bits and pieces here and there, and it sounded nice, but I didn't try to understand or really dig into what's going on or go deeper. I thought... The parts I heard were nice, but they were a little bit similar. And of course, I was wrong. Something I've been before, I've been told. (laughs) Well, John, you've come to the right person. Perfect. So if you haven't heard this before, or you're like me and you just heard small parts here and there, stay with us as there is a lot to love and discover in this work. And And we have a kind of challenge at the end, too. Okay, Bill, let's first define some of the terms so that we're all on the same page, myself included. What is an oratorio. Well, an oratorio is essentially a narrative work that's meant for the concert hall that involves uh, recitatives and arias and choruses, usually to tell a story. Uh, Handel made a lot of oratorios in his career when he was not allowed to do opera anymore, and he just jumped into the oratorio movement. He gave us some of the best ones in the repertoire. Johann Sebastian Bach did several As you would guess with uh, Bach, the good Lutheran, uh, all of them are involving some uh, religious uh, event or celebration. And the oratorio, it's made up of six parts or cantatas. Now, what exactly is a cantata? Well, this is also something, too, to point out, because I mentioned Handel earlier. Bach's Christmas oratorio isn't structured like Handel's oratorios. It's essentially six separate cantatas that Bach wrote for the Christmas season of 1733-1734 when he was in Leipzig. He'd been in Leipzig for a number of years, and he wrote a different cantata for six days that celebrate the Christmas tide in Leipzig. But uh, he published them all together as a Christmas oratorio. And a cantata, it can be those things you describe, but it can also be secular as well, right? There's secular cantatas? Yes, and Bach uh, himself wrote several secular cantatas as well as the religious cantatas. That was his stock and trade, having to come up with a new one every for every Sunday service in the Leipzig churches when he was the cantor there. And it's the same thing as I mentioned with an oratorio. It's a collection of choruses, arias, recitatives, in some sense to tell a story in, in many instances with cantatas that have been written. Cantata profana, Carmina Burana is a good example. Or in the case of Bach, it's to impart a theological lesson for the congregations in Leipzig. So an oratorio, a large dramatic work, a concert work, not an opera with a stage and costumes and things like that. This one, it's made up of these separate cantatas. Now, how would the original audience 
have heard this. This would not have been in like a concert hall with tickets to sell, would it? No, these were the original presentation of what we now know as Bach's Christmas Oratorio was given over six days in the Christmas tide of the years I mentioned, 33 to 34 in the 1700s. Part one for the first day of Christmas, part two for the second day of Christmas, the day right after, part three for the third day of Christmas. Then part four was for the what we now call the Feast of the Holy Family. It would have been the Feast of the Presentation. Part five, the first Sunday in the new year. And finally, part six, the Feast of Epiphany, which celebrates uh, the coming of the Magi to uh, Bethlehem. And this is in contrast to how we hear it today, isn't it? Which is typically in a concert hall, not in this. I think it's pretty rare, right, for this to be performed in this traditional way over the the Christmas season between Christmas and Epiphany? Yeah, not so much anymore. Generally, it's presented as a single performance, all six cantatas together as uh, in Bach's autograph score, how he assembled them, and typically in a, a concert hall. This is a much bigger tradition in Europe than it is over here, although here in Washington, we're blessed to have the Washington Bach Consort, which has begun a new tradition of doing the Christmas Oratorio every December. Oh, that's I love that. So Bach writing this in 1733, he was in Leipzig, and this was a post where it saw him writing an extraordinary amount of music, especially cantatas, a new one every week for a while that resulted in hundreds. And yeah, imagine that. And that's the thing. How how did Bach pull that off with one the amount of children he had, chaos around the house, chaos around his um, life as as a musician, pulling this all together? How does he write all this? And in part. He was like many other Baroque composers in that he was able to reuse or recycle some older material. Some material we know about, some has actually been lost. Sometimes it's from a secular work. Sometimes it's just a fragment like a melody. Sometimes it's lifted almost just verbatim from another work, but with different lyrics. And I have just a fun example here of how this, how he did this in practice with this oratorio. Here is part of a chorus from a cantata he wrote about Hercules a few years before. And then after that, part of a chorus that we find in this oratorio. I think they sound pretty similar. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Almost exactly similar, except for the words that they're singing. Yes, the words are changed. That's what he was able to do. And I thought, I want to have a little fun with this. How exactly the same is the music and the the notes here? So I put together a little example of basically switching back and forth one cantata to the next to see how seamlessly it can all fit together. Now, if you have keen ears or if you speak German, your eye might be twitching a little bit uh, with that. But that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It is. And it it wasn't uncommon in Bach's day. It was something that uh, is called parody, where you borrow something from a previous work and you reuse it. Uh, In Bach's case in 1733, in his job at Leipzig, let's just say the bloom was off the rose. Uh, He'd been there for a number of years, and he was not 
entirely satisfied with working conditions. They weren't entirely satisfied with him. He had a big family to provide for. He was a very busy man, very industrious. So when it came time to writing new music, he would do the parody. He would take something that he had written years before, in this case, secular cantatas when he was working for the elector of Saxony years before, and repurposing it for uh, a sacred cantata for the oratorio. I mean, they always say, right, work smarter, not harder. Right, exactly. So we'll get into the music now to describe and really kind of define some of the things you mentioned before, like choruses, um, recitative, and aria. And I know you have some great highlights and moments for us to listen for in the oratorio. We can use part one, the first cantata, to show some of the anatomy, the things that you mentioned, the things that make up the cantata, as we learn some of these new terms. But before we get to that, real quick, Bill, tell us a little bit about this first cantata, when this would have been performed in the Christmas season, or any other details we should know. This particular one, part one, is for the first day of Christmas, which is Christmas Day. And this would have been presented in the Leipzig churches and for the various different uh, services that Bach had this in mind for. So what we're hearing in the very beginning of this is you would expect on Christmas morning a celebratory thing, celebrating the birth of Jesus. There's lots of percussion and lots of brass instruments and just this genuine sense of joy that you feel right from the very beginning in the opening Remarkable Chorus. And that chorus that opens the cantata, I love all those things you're talking about because it sounds so joyous and uplifting, and it really sets the scene, I think, almost like an overture can. You know, we're hearing the text, what this is about, and the style of music and everything. It's a brilliant opening. Then we get to uh, something you mentioned before, a recitative. Now, to just um, quickly define this, a recitative, this is when a singer is giving dialogue, and while the rhythms mimic speech, they're actually, of course, still singing the notes, and the accompaniment typically stops while an instrument like a lute or harpsichord, and here too, I believe, accompanied with a cello, they're just outlining some chords, giving some punctuation to the dialogue of the of the singer. It's a very free moment for the soloist. And this first one, it is for a character, the evangelist. Now, what's the purpose of this character, and are there are there any more that we'll hear? The evangelist is uh, something that's common to uh, an oratorio that's drawn from a sacred source. Uh, for example, uh, if you're familiar with the Bach Passions, the St. Matthew Passion, the St. John Passion, usually the tenor voice is the evangelist. He's providing the narration of the story that Bach is about to relate in his oratorio and in this you know, beginning here with this opening cantata. So that's the role of the evangelist. Occasionally a recitative will be from one of the other solo voices, and usually that's more of a prayer or a reflection on uh, what's happening. And I think you can hear the difference, for instance, that one with the evangelist, it goes right into a recitative for an alto uh, voice, um, a soloist, and... It's all those same things, delivering dialogue, rhythmic like speech, but singing. But the accompaniment, it changes a little bit here in that it's a little more filled out and and flowing. And I think it fits in how you describe it. It's more prayer-like compared to the maybe more authoritative speech of the evangelist. Right. And Bach will also add little instrumental touches, too, that will sort of limb or underline whatever the singer is singing about. Okay. That recitative for the alto goes into... An aria. Now, this is kind of what you expect, right? This is a proper solo for the singer. They're not giving dialogue. There's not a, a duet. This is just the singer with the 
orchestra. Right. It's an aria, uh, like like an aria in an opera or mm-hmm. an aria in a cantata or, or in another oratorio, yes. Now then in this, we get to a chorale. And this is an interesting part that I think really needs context for us today. We started with a chorus. Now we have something called a chorale. What's, what's the difference? Well, if I can use an illustration, you're familiar with a holiday tradition in some places called a sing-along messiah, mm-hmm. right, where the, the concert attendees come and pick up a copy of the libretto, and when it comes time for the chorales or the choruses, they get up and sing along, you know, think of Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is born, or the great hallelujah chorus. For Bach and his sacred cantatas each and every Sunday, they were pretty much designed to be sing-along works. A chorale was where Bach would have what was at that time a very well-known Lutheran hymn to the congregants at the church, and they would that would be their opportunity to sing. So the chorales that you're going to hear throughout the Christmas Oratorio uh, are usually based on an old Lutheran hymn that uh, can be heard in any kind of Sunday service or what have you. So that's the purpose and the difference between a chorale and a chorus. The chorale is the opportunity for the congregants to participate in the music making. This one is also an important part of the first cantata. This is a pretty important um, chorale. Well, this is a, I love, this is to me one of the most striking elements of the first cantata. The first time I heard it, it kind of set me back a little bit because the first chorale that we hear is the famous Passion Chorale that you hear in the St. Matthew Passion or that people will hear in Lenten services. And it sounded kind of jarring for me to hear something that I would normally hear at Easter in a Christmas event. But then again, it's Bach also reminding us, as he will throughout this oratorio, why Jesus was born, why Christ was born. It was because of his passion and death, which he brings redemption to the world. And that's what that opening chorale in the... uh, part one reminds us of. So we've got and we've learned about um, choruses, recitative, the difference with a chorale, the aria. And he also combines these as well. This is another great moment in the first cantata to listen for where there's a chorale and then there's also a recitative for a bass singer, almost like a, a call and response. Does this kind of aspect, is this Bach adding, is he adding dramaticism this way in the oratorio? Yeah, it's a way of adding a a certain amount of drama and also getting different textures with different voices, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And sometimes they hand off with one another, and sometimes they're in dialogue. Uh, In both cases, it usually, it follows whatever the evangelist just said, part of the narrative as we're following it along. And in other parts, it also sort of heightens the drama a little bit. And then we get a wonderful aria in the bass, and it closes up with another chorale, very similar to the the opening that we heard. This just kind of wraps up the cantata, doesn't it? Right, and, and all of this is designed to be celebratory, too. It's it's Yes, it's a sacred cantata that's part of Bach's Christmas Oratorio, a sacred oratorio, if you will, but its original purpose was for a Christmas Day service, and that's how it proceeds, and that's how it progresses. Now we get to part two, the, um, the second cantata. Tell us about this one, when this would have been performed, and what we need to know. This would have been performed on the second day of Christmas, which um, in this particular cantata, part two basically focuses on the angel's annunciation to the shepherds. And this also is one of my favorite passages in the Christmas oratorio. It's the Sinfonia. It's a pastoral, which is an old Baroque and even pre-Baroque 
form of music that was designed to sort of set the scene. In this case, there were shepherds in the fields abiding by their flocks at night, keeping watch. And that's what this particular pastoral symphonia does. It's a breath, a chance to breathe for about three or four minutes before we get on with the oratorio. And it's an absolutely beautiful piece of music. I really enjoyed listening to it and reading from what you were telling me before about this pastoral aspect. It doesn't have this droning sound necessarily that you find in some other works that are have that have this pastoral section, but he uses in a clever way, I think, reed instruments like oboe, especially in a little bit not the low register, but the middle low register to create this um, the same sound. And it creates that very pastoral feeling. It's, it still has that sort of drone that you need for a pastoral. Um, Handel did it very famously in Messiah with the Pifa. Uh, again, right before the Annunciation to the Shepherds. And it's, like I said, it's a tradition from that you hear in a lot of uh, Christmas music from Baroque composers. But this, I think, from Bach is maybe the best. A beautiful one in the in the second cantata. What's another moment here from the second one we can listen for? Well, the other thing, too, we were talking about chorales, which, again, is a well-known Lutheran tune. And, and this is also one of my favorites. The first chorale in part two, which is when the angel appears to the shepherds. And again, Bach using a, a Lutheran tune. And I think with sort of a wink and a nod from Papa Bach, the tune is Break Forth, O Beauteous Heavenly Light, which is appropriate for angels appearing to the shepherds at night. And as the angel is speaking to the shepherds, I think it's the following recitative, right? The voice that is delivering the recitative, the accompaniment is a little bit different. We talked about the differences you can find in these recitatives. This one, it's got the strings along with it, right, and yeah. it's very angelic. Right. Uh, what Bach does is something that he, he did in his St. Matthew Passion, where every time Jesus speaks or sings... There's a halo of strings around him. In this case, when the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, there's a halo of strings around the angel's voice as well. It's beautiful. Two beautiful moments to listen for in the second cantata. Going into the third, when would this one have been performed and what else can we expect? The third cantata for the third day of Christmas, that's December 27th, and this continues the oratorio story where the angel has appeared and left the shepherds, and now the shepherds go to the stable uh, to see this which has come to pass. And in the second chorus, where the shepherds are saying, let us go and see, the music displays kind of an excitement with uh, nervous energy and scurrying strings because the shepherds are very, very excited about what they've heard and seen. They want to go into town, into Bethlehem to find the baby Jesus. I love so much listening to this part when you told me to listen for it because up until this point, the music is, I mean, it's beautiful. It's all these things we've been describing, but virtuosic would not be in the vocabulary I would use. But with this, this took, I mean, musicians, professional musicians can sight read very, very well. And you could sight read this, but they would have been practicing this part, I mean, pretty well before the performance. And it's one of those moments where it does elevate the difficulty for for the musicians, who must have been tired as well, having to play this, you know, not just every day so far, the 25th, the 26th, the 27th, but also at both churches most days in Leipzig. Right, exactly. And it's, I keep drawing comparisons to Handel's Messiah because that's one that everybody is so familiar with. But it operates the same way. And both composers were really, really good at using voices and music to decorate the drama and uh, as it was unfolding with different voices and different uh, musical techniques. And, and Bach, of course, is a master here. 
I like that word decorate because it's almost, it is kind of like looking at each cantata, a scene in a painting, and you're seeing all these things he does, like adding strings for this halo sound, the way he accompanies the recitatives. It's like all these details in the painting that kind of come out like a, like a relief. I never thought about it. That's an excellent comparison, John. Oh, there you go. Now, part four. When does this one happen? Is it the 28th? Part four is a few days later. This is the cantata for the new year, which was called uh, the Naming of Jesus. In the old days, it was called the Feast of the Circumcision. Uh, now they would say the Feast of the Presentation. And uh, this is also a very uh, wonderful part in the oratorio, and it's got one of my favorite parts, I think, in the entire oratorio. There's a number of, as we were talking about, there's a number of really wonderful duets throughout this oratorio, but my favorite is the one here in part four. It's the fourth aria for soprano and echo soprano. It's the famous echo duet, uh, where the echo voice is sort of off stage, answering a series of questions, either no or yes. Uh, Does thy name instill the tiniest bit of terror? Nine, no, you hear the echo voice. Shall I fear death? And again, the echo voice comes nine, nine, no. Shall I rejoice? Yeah, yeah, yes. It's, it's just a magical effect. And it's also with an oboe offstage, too. Right, the oboe sort of uh, introduces the uh, echo soprano part, yes. And when I first listened to this little excerpt, I was, I mean, blown away about how how beautiful a moment it is and how dramatic it is with this call and response and these answers of, of yes and no. But also, I can tell you, as a musician, this striking effect is not easy. This is very difficult for musicians. I've played many antiphonal works in cathedrals, like when you have a brass choir at the very back in a different balcony. You're separated, so you, you surround the audience with, with sound. Sometimes you're 100, well over 100, maybe even 200 feet away in huge cathedrals from the stage, from the conductor. What makes it so difficult is you cannot go by anything you're hearing when you're performing. So when you're hearing this being played with this echo, they are not really able to listen and go off of each other. Because if you do, with the delay of sound, you will be late. And the last thing you want to be told when you're playing an offstage part is, you're late, you're dragging, you're late. You don't want to hear that. So you have to play ahead of what you're kind of assuming, and you're almost a little bit, you're looking ahead of the conductor as well. Sometimes you get a TV feed that you can use, but it's difficult. What makes this even more difficult is that all these answers and responses, they're short. Oftentimes when you're having like an antiphonal part in a requiem, for instance, off, you know, off the back of a hall, you come in and you're playing for a long phrase, 16 bars or, or more. Here, it's just yes, no, going from oboe to oboe to singer to singer. And that's difficult to, to pull off. Yeah, and it's, it's one thing to do that in a recording studio. But just imagine hearing this being performed live. And this is the moment from what you've described and when I heard this that made me think, well, now I really have to see this in person. I can just imagine seeing an ensemble like the Washington Bach Consort playing this and hearing just the sound all around you. Now, that brings us to part five. Okay, part five. Now, part four again, that was the cantata for New Year's Day. Part five is for the first Sunday after Christmas. And now we're getting close to Epiphany, the Feast of the Epiphany, which was the the journey of the Magi following the start of Bethlehem. So that's where part five comes in, the journey of the Magi. And again, you're hearing the hurrying, scurrying music in the uh, opening chorus, Era Zaidir Gat Gesungen, Let Thy Story Be Sung, O God. Of course, they sing it a lot faster than I'm 
that I'm saying it in my kind of clipped German. Once again, it's a New Year sentiment, bringing light into darkness and also introducing the bad guy, the baddie in this whole drama, and that's King Herod, whose recitatives and arias, uh, where they bring his character in, they bring in some more ominous music here. But Bach's message is, he doesn't dwell too much in the darkness because his message is, is why fear? Christ is here. It's the best message of Christmas, light into darkness. I love thinking about little moments in history, when things happened, what people thought or how they felt when they saw something. You know, there had to be people in the congregation who were maybe sort of singing along in the chorales, like, okay, you know, I'm tired. You know, this is the 1700s. They've probably got up very early. There's a lot of farm and animals to work. So, But you have to remember, these are good Lutherans. You know, you yes. go to church, you go to service, God and, and, and your work, and um, this, is, this was all part of the deal. But Christmas was a time for celebration. It's just the idea of someone seeing this incredible work and just thinking, eh, okay, time to go home. <laughs> well, that brings us to part six, the Feast of Epiphany, and this would be, I imagine, on Epiphany. Right, exactly. This is the uh, Feast of the Epiphany. This part of the oratorio is the adoration of the Magi, and the opening chorus reminds us of the opening chorus from part one. It's full of great marching pomp, brass, and percussion. So it, again, it, it's a celebratory thing, because the Feast of the Epiphany is as big a celebration as the feast day of Christmas, too. So again, you're going to need suitable music for this. When he brings the trumpets back in, I was... I mean, I know Bach writes some difficult music. We heard some of that more virtuosic music earlier on. The parts he's writing for the brass, these trumpets, which would have been, remember, natural trumpets, which we've talked about a little bit in the past, where you look at a trumpet today, it's got all these valves on it that make it easier to play in tune all the notes that you want. Back in the day, they did not have that. They would Natural trumpets where you're just using your lips, no valves, or maybe some holes your fingers would cover and uncover. There's some very difficult writing for them there, especially thinking this brings back all of the feelings I get from the first cantata, which is just this celebration. And of course, the bringing back the timpani, the trumpets really adds to that. Exactly, exactly. And as anybody that plays a trumpet can tell you, Bach wrote some incredibly challenging music for that instrument. The first chorale is also another magical part of part six. The chorale is, I stand beside thy manger, O Jesu line, or, or little baby Jesus. This is the quietest chorale, I think, in the entire work, and it's perfect for the Magi finally arriving at the stable in Bethlehem and seeing the infant Jesus, which they've traveled so far to see. The music just sort of quiets down in wonder. It's, it's another magical moment. And as you're describing that, I'm also kind of thinking... It's, it's the different ways of, of celebrating, thinking now, well, the hallelujah chorus, just to compare to something that, that people really know, this huge, magnificent, loud, uplifting, larger-than-life moment juxtaposed to this moment where they're standing in front of the baby. They're, you know, they're in person, and they're quiet. It's more, it's more introspective. It's the awe of not knowing what to say. Almost. Right, yeah. As, um, I think it was... Uh... W.B. Yeats in the poem, The uh, Awesome Wonder of the Bestial Floor, which is another example of that. A beautiful moment and taking us into one of the last, if not the last, recitative, where this is a little bit different, right, than what we've heard before. This is a magical recitative. Christ overcomes fear, the pains of hell, the fear of death. And in this last recitative, he brings all four soloists coming in to remind us that he's already with us, 
and that he's here with us in the last chorale in the work, once again, alludes to the Passion Chorale that we heard in part one. Uh, it's, it, he brings that back in. Because again, he's reminding us that, you know, Christmas isn't just a celebration of a birth. It's why Christ came onto earth. It's being born because it was by his passion and cross that he redeems us. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, Bach, again, the very religious Bach getting back to the real message of Christmas. Bringing it full circle. Right. So these six cantatas, they make up the oratorio. We've learned a lot about things like recitatives, uh, chorus, chorale, arias, and more that all fit within all of these cantatas. We've heard some great moments here, Bill, of, of all the things that we need to listen for. So thank you so much for that. A question I have is, today this is a concert piece performed all at once, rarely over the 12 days of, of the Christmas uh, season here. Do you think Bach was aware that this might be possible in the future, that this would all be played at once? Somehow I think so, and I think the reason for that is that while these were six separate cantatas written for six separate feast days in that particular celebration of Christmas in Leipzig, the autograph score has all of them together under the title Weinox Oratorium or Christmas Oratorio. So there's a part of me that thinks that that's what Bach really wanted it to do. He has an Easter Oratorio, an Ascension Oratorio, he's got the two passions, and now he's got an, an Oratorio for the other great Christian uh, feast celebration, the Feast of Christmas. So I think that, I like to think that maybe he would. And I also want to mention too, because we were talking about the Washington Bach Consort and their tradition of bringing the Christmas Oratorio to Washingtonians. It was actually supposed to debut last year, and last year we were in lockdown and people weren't performing. So what the consort did, and I thought this was ingenious, is they presented each cantata virtually on the different feast days of the Christmastide. Now, that is something Bach could have never predicted, but I'm sure would have loved nonetheless. I think so too, yes. Absolutely. So the classical breakdown challenge or or homework assignment, there's no grades, so I mean, don't worry, but the challenge is... Listen to this Christmas oratorio, either in six parts over six days, because each cantata, they're only like 20 to 25 minutes, sometimes 30 minutes long. Right. The whole oratorio performance will take uh, about three hours, which actually is about the same amount of time that it would take for a performance of Handel's Messiah, which, uh, of course, is a, a holiday tradition in Washington and pretty much everywhere else, too. So we already have the stamina for it, but you can listen to it in, in bite-sized chunks or take that challenge, listen to the whole thing at once, maybe with a, a snack break. And if you do, please let us know how it went, what you learned, good or bad, maybe something else that you discovered in this piece that you love that we didn't mention. You can email us at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you're listening to this before Christmas, I believe we're going to air the entire oratorio on Christmas Day at 9 p.m. on Classical WETA. Is that right? Actually, this year, John, we have two presentations of the Christmas Oratorio. One, if I may do a little self-promotion here, will be on Sunday night, December 19th. Uh, We're going to be playing a new recording of the Christmas Oratorio, Horty Saval and La Capella Real de Catalunya and Le Concert de Nation. And as always, uh, here on Classical WETA, on Christmas night, 9 p.m., We also present the complete Christmas Oratorio. So you have two uh, opportunities this year to hear it. Two opportunities, and we'll also put some links on the show notes page. And now it's time for a listener question, actually, Bill. Barbara wrote in and asked, Vivaldi wrote over 200 violin concertos, but how come later and other prolific composers like Beethoven and Tchaikovsky 
why do they only write one violent concerto? And I think the answer, it kind of falls into what we were talking about before with Baroque composers needing to write a lot of new material because these weren't concerts that you would just go to um, you know, on the weekend for a Kennedy Center performance. These were sacred or religious or for the royal court, and that emphasis was on new music. So there was a quantity of music compared to composers like Beethoven and Tchaikovsky who are writing these big statement pieces that would be performed, that people would buy tickets for, and would be something that would have a lasting legacy. Not that Vivaldi's concertos don't have a lasting legacy, but there's a difference in expectation. And a difference in purpose, too. All of this was written back before the time of recorded music, and especially uh, back during the time of Bach and Vivaldi, it wasn't expected that you would hear a piece performed again. Right. Or, for example, somebody wanted to commission six concertos for flute from Antonio Vivaldi, the Opus 10 flute concertos. So he wrote them six concertos. The other thing, too, is that it was a lot simpler back then to gather together a number of musicians, small musicians in a chamber ensemble, to perform these concertos together. By the time of uh, the Romantics, we'll call them, Beethoven and Brahms and uh, Tchaikovsky, Music making had sort of moved from parlors and uh, homes into concert halls, and they were much grander affairs. Mm -hmm. The relation, too, between the soloist in the concerto and the ensemble musicians had shifted, too. It was almost like a competition between the soloist and the orchestra rather than concerto as in, in concert performing together, sounding together. Right, because they're also writing for, oftentimes, superstars on their instruments. Right, yeah. So it was, there was definitely more of a show element in Beethoven's time that there wasn't quite back in the time of Vivaldi and Bach. So in Bill Bukowski's house in 1725, we wouldn't dare hear the same concerto twice, would we? No, of course not. You no. have to come up with something new. you got to keep the public interested, you know? Something new. What else What else have you got? Okay, that was great. That was last week. What do you got for me this week? Yes, but I can listen to Tchaikovsky every week. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Very enlightening here, learning all about the Christmas Oratorio. I've been... I feel like I'm myself, is ju I'm just scratching the surface, and I'll take the challenge, and I think we're just going to, for myself at least, discover more and more about this. Well, and I will say too, John, for, for you, there will be a quiz. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, John. It's been fun. <laughs> 